on Friday, there was an um, article written by David Brooks, a few people recommended to me, and deals with all sorts of things um, that the church must address. Um, many of you know that my wife and I met at uh, a camp called Canacuck in the Midwest, um, large camp. By large, I mean about 20,000 campers when we were working there, and um, they got into some big trouble. Some of you have been following that story, um, covered by another journalist. And last year, after um, a very large ministry was found out to be covering um, abuse, Amira reached out to us because like all of our cross-cultural gospel workers, those that work in Senegal and Peru and those that work in Massachusetts, we desire not only to support them but to learn from them. And they offered uh, to have one of their staff train our elders and our uh, staff on how to engage when people come and tell us some of their darker stories. And they offered to have their CEO, Stephanie Clark, uh, preach a sermon about the power of the gospel in the face of shame and the things the church needs to learn from and continue to grow. These are not new problems, but in 2022, they can look different. And so the church needs to continue to grow and to grow up. So I'd like to invite Stephanie to come up for a sermon. Is it on? All right. Hi. Um, as I will begin to speak, you will notice I do not have a New England accent. I have many vowels. That's because I'm from Michigan. We like to enunciate them all. Um, I will also look you directly in the eye. We are very friendly people in Michigan. It's real. It's not like the South. It's all good, okay? <laughs> I try to deviate a little bit because this is a heavy sermon, and so I will crack jokes throughout. It's just because I believe in the power of laughter when we're dealing with really, really dark things. Um, and as Pastor Matt shared, I run an organization called Amira, which you all support. I'm sure most of you know what we do. Um, we work with women who are coming out of the commercial sex trade. So I laugh a lot in my day because I do believe that it does great things. In February of 2003, I sat in the balcony at Moody Church in Chicago, mesmerized at this man at the pulpit who closed his eyes chunks of scripture from the book of Exodus. It was quite amazing to watch somebody with a eidetic photographic memory just go at it. And that was immensely impressive, but what was even more impressive was, was that he was giving this exposition of all the names of God from the Old Testament to the names of God to the New Testament and how they all fit together to show that God existed. I sat soul satisfied that evening. In February of 2021, I sat with my laptop on my uh, lap with tears in my eyes as I read through the report from Miller and Martin giving a full report about this man who is now deceased, Ravi Zacharias. I read disheartened because it had taken so long for this report to come out. I read in pain for the women who spoke out for years and years and years and were told to hush and be quiet. And we don't want to listen to them. 
I read and a familiar numbness just began to crawl over my body. As I thought of yet another leader in the church who I had respected and listened to and learned from for years, was once found out again for the sin of sexual misconduct and in this case, even sexual exploitation. When the hashtag MeToo movement began, another hashtag came out, Church Too, and voices began to speak up. And some were silenced, but some spoke up loudly and more loudly and longer, and finally reports like this came about. And again, I sat back kind of cautiously, wondering, well, what actually is going to happen? You see, nothing about the news of Ravi Zacharias is new. We live in a messed up world, not just the secular world, but the church, too, tends to quite, be quite messed up. Those who call themselves followers of Jesus choosing to, abuse, to hide abuse for years. Those with the most power using it to lure and groom and manipulate and harm. But again, this is not new. You can turn to Judges. Oh, sorry. You can turn to Judges 19, and you have the story of the Levite and his concubine, who's technically probably a second wife, but one that didn't fall into any given category of protection or really seen as a legal responsibility for him. Essentially a woman that he could have sex with. That's what she was. Him, a Levite, coming from the tribe that produces the priests. And if you read through that chapter, you see all sorts of truly horrendous things being done to this woman, including at the end, a group of men gang raping her, and her body is torn into pieces, and it's sent to all the tribes of Israel. Yeah, but that's the book of Judges, right? There's nothing good in the book of Judges, as we all know. So let's go to 2 Samuel. Huh? In the span of probably like four pages in your Bible, you will see three separate stories of adultery, rape, and massive mistreatment of women sexually on a scale for all of Israel to see. Kicks off in chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba. Ah, yes, we all love David and Bathsheba, right? One for the ages. A man after God's own heart. We think he is so wonderful, and yet he sees Bathsheba bathing, and no longer is he wonderful, right? He takes her for his own. She ends up pregnant, and so in an attempt to kind of hush this all away, he has the husband killed. That's a man after God's own heart. And then two chapters later, 2 Samuel 13, you have the story of Abnon and Tamar. Adnan is one of the sons of this king, the king after God's own heart, who lusts, not loves, lusts after his brother's sister, Tamar. It's probably like his half-sister, you know, because she's a virgin. He plays sick, forces her to come and nurse him back to health, and then rapes her. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, Gets his revenge, though, and he kills Abnon. 
Now, before you're like, yeah, go Absalom, great, great, great guy, right? Just skip ahead a couple of pages, and you're going to see in chapter 16 that Absalom at this point is trying to become king, and he's trying to take the throne away from his father. And so he decides that he is going to listen to this counselor who says, hey, 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 take all of your father's concubines up to the top of that hill in the tent and have sex with them in front of all of Israel so everybody in Israel can hear it and see it. You see, I, I don't really need to tell you story of victims today. It's in, it's in our Bible. These stories are enough to kind of make you cringe and feel uncomfortable and maybe even be quite infuriated. And I can hear you. I, I always hear this, right? That's the Old Testament. So let's, let's turn to the New Testament, right? How about John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery? Yes, the woman caught in adultery, who the Pharisees drag and throw down and put all the shame there for everybody to see and ask Jesus, what are we going to do with her? But where's the dude? Right? Doesn't it take two to commit adultery? But the Pharisees, who are the leaders of the church, don't really seem to care so much about the man. Just, you know, where's that woman and can we stone her? And I'm probably jaded. I will be full up front with you on that. But this is part of the reason why stories like Ravi Zacharias don't shock me. Nothing about the Me Too and the Church Too movement shocked me. It was just a deep reminder to me that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. You see, even with all these things that I've heard over the years from the women that we work with at Amira, or the women that I counseled when I was a pastor, and even all the experiences I have endured in the secular world and the church world where I can gladly raise my hand and say, yep, me too, I still believe wholeheartedly that this is not the way that God wants it to be. I believe and have hope in a God who does love deeply every facet of who I am and who you are because I'm his daughter, you are his daughter, you are his son who sees us not as something to be used and abused and left, but something that is gifted for his will that is good, pleasing, and perfect. That when he created man and woman and created sex, that no abuse or hurt or violence or power dynamic or authority or any sort of manipulative weirdness was ever the intent if you don't believe me, take the afternoon and read through the Song of Songs, where you're going to find unbelievable vulnerability and intimacy. That's what God intended. So how do we get to that, what God intended, when everything seems to be so messed up? I believe that the answers lie in what we can know of God based on his mercy and his justice. And if we apply these things with great care, we can see a more beautiful picture of God's kingdom on this earth. Now I will preface this that there is a lot of nuance, and this takes a lot of patience, and this takes a lot of time. And that if there is abuse, this has no place. There must be repentance. So let's start by looking at what the Word of God says about mercy. There are a lot of places that you can turn to, but I like Isaiah chapter 55. This chapter shows the compassionate heart of God. 
to the people of Israel, one that is ready to forgive them of their sins, one that is ready to extend mercy. And as you read through this chapter, it starts off by talking about all the, about all the victims, the people that are destitute, the people that are left behind, and God is going to extend his mercy to them. And that makes sense to us, right? If somebody is down on their luck, yeah, yeah, let's give compassion, let's show them mercy, extend that. But then in verse 7, God says this, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. See, so it can be very easy to help those who have been hurt, and it should be, because clearly God wants to do that. But God doesn't stop there on who he's willing to give mercy to. He reminds us later on in this chapter that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. So mercy, according to God, will be given out to everyone. If you've been abused, mercy will be extended. If you've been an abuser, mercy will be extended. If you are righteous, mercy will be extended. If you are wicked, mercy will be extended. Anne Lamont wrote in her beautiful book, Hallelujah Anyways, mercy is radical kindness. Mercy means offering or being offered aid in desperate straits. Mercy is not deserved. It absolves it involves absolving the unabsolvable, forgiving the unforgivable. Mercy brings us to the miracle of apology, given and accepted to unashamed humility when we have erred or forgotten. I like that phrase, unashamed humility. If you are somebody who has committed the abuse, I can only imagine the shame how much do I really want to just tell somebody, hey, I look at child pornography. What would happen if I actually confessed that? Kind of a scary thought, isn't it? And so it tends to just stay silent. Yet mercy must be received. Forgiveness is being offered. This is what God tells us. Imagine hiking Mount Washington. I did this a few years ago. I don't recommend it. <laughs> 6,288 feet all the way up in the granite state. And you come down off the mountain with immense hunger pains. And at the foothills of the mountain, this beautiful spot, there is a picnic table filled with all the barbecue you could ever want. There is smoke pulled pork and brisket and ribs and all the sides like potato salad and pasta salad and coleslaw and cornbread. Oh, the sweet cornbread. It is just everything you could want after hiking that mountain. And so you sit down with all the other hikers and they are filling up their plates and you sit there with your hands on your lap. You don't grab a plate and all of a sudden your stomach starts to growl. So much so that everybody at the table is, is hearing this. They're like, well, what are you doing, right? Here's the food. Satiate that hunger. What's going on? But you just sit there and let the growling grow louder and louder and louder. 
if you are on the side of committing the abuse, you need mercy. Don't let that hunger grow louder. Receive the mercy. God is giving it. Mercy must be received. Forgiveness is always offered, but you have to take it. Now, this is definitely hard to hear, especially for those of us who have been on the receiving side of abuse and all the things that have gone wrong when it comes to sex in the world. We often do not want to hear that God is happy to forgive the ones who did this to us. We want vengeance. We want evil to happen to them. If you're a child of the 80s, like I am, Lorena Bobbitt, please come and do your thing, right? But the justice of God asks you to let this pain and anger and vengeance go. In fact, God reminds us a lot through Scripture. But I'll just give you one. It's Deuteronomy 32, 35, where he says, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In Proverbs 21, 15, it says, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. So the question for those of us who have been abused is, is, is that Is that going to be enough? I'd like to share with you a story. I I often do not share the story widely, but for today, this seemed very important. Now, this story, I'm going to ask for grace because it does not always work out like this. And again, so there is nuance, there is patience, there is time. So I grew up in a uh, house of uh, pastors. I, when I was a pastor, I was a fourth-generation pastor. All my great-grandparents and all that, all pastors before me. So I grew up as a pastor's kid, going to church and Sunday school every single week. I got all my gold stars for all the scripture memorization. We grew up Lutheran, so I also did the catechism. Boom, 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 boom. Have it all down, right? That's who I was, gold star stuff. When I was eight years old, my parents fought a lot. This was just known, you know. They were loud, fight, fought, fighting a ton. And any time that happened, my sister and I, we kind of just removed ourselves and let them fight, and then, you know, things worked out. But when I was eight years old, there was a really, really big fight. And so my sister and I just kind of went down in the basement, really, to try to get away. And for some reason, my older sister was not in the same room as I was in, and my, I just heard, like, this explosive shouting. I got really, really scared. And so I went into the other room and found my older sister, and she was on the floor crying. I said, well, why are you crying? And she said, well, I just heard Dad say that he's having an affair. And so here I am, eight years old, trying to figure out, well, I think I know what that word means because I watch a lot of soap operas and, you know, on summer breaks. And so I think I got this. And that's kind of what I came to know. And as time unfolded, it became more and more known among us as a family that, yep, my dad goes to strip clubs and sees prostitutes. And, yeah, there was actual, an actual affair as well in there, but really it's a lot of sexual sin against women that are exploited. And that's what he did. My parents were married for 20 years, and 18 of those 20 years, that was his life. So I found this out when I was eight, 
and we did exactly what you're supposed to do, you keep it quiet. You don't talk about these things. Because if we talk about these things, dad loses his job. And because of what he's doing, we really don't have a lot of money. So if he loses his job, then we're going to be homeless. So, Steph, you have to keep this quiet. Therapy has been great, by the way. So by the time I'm turning 16, it really just got to the end of it. And somehow, some way, my mom, who was pretty beaten down by that point, finally told one of his best friends, who was also a pastor, what was going on. And thankfully, the Lutheran Church had a, a good system set up, and they removed him from his job and put him on a track of restoration and took care of things with that and told him, quite frankly, if, if your wife asks for a divorce, she has every biblical right to do that. So you give that to her. And so they went through a period of separation right around the time I was 16. And at that point, here I was, eight years into this, all the things that I had been feeling were finally able to come out. And so here I am, a 16-year-old, filled with angst, with Alanis Morissette going out loud all the time. And I just kind of let it explode out. And there was one day, I remember my mom was on the phone with my dad, and I could hear it in her voice that she was, she was going to take him back. And I just ran into that room, and I grabbed the phone, and I cussed out my father, and I hung up the phone on him, and I looked her in the eye, and I said, you're getting a divorce, I cannot do this anymore. And she did. And so then I spent the next year and a half, two years, doing what the world will tell you to do when you're an angry child, drinking and you know, doing lots of other things, because that's what you do, right? You become an empowered woman by becoming a shell of yourself on the inside. You never let them see how, anger, how angry you really are and how empty and hollow you really are. But that's what I did. And I had this rule. I don't recommend this, by the way, for all the teenage girls in the room. I had this rule where I would date guys for two weeks, and at the end of two weeks I would break up with them because I was never going to let a man hurt me the way my dad hurt my mom. And so I dated and dated and dated and dated and dated all these little boys and teenagers. I never understood why they didn't figure out that I was going to dump them in two weeks, but it just happened. <laughs> Somehow, in the process of that, I ended up dating a Christian guy. And at two weeks, I broke up with him. But then we became friends, and so we still were you know, hanging out. And he started inviting me to Bible study. And so I went to Bible study with him. And they were talking about things, and I actually was able to answer a lot of the questions, because you remember Gold Star Steph? All that stuff was still in my brain. And then I would go partying on the weekends, and then Gold Star Steph on Wednesday nights. Seemed to be working out okay. And then on spring break, I ended up going on this retreat for some reason. And it was Grand Rapids, Michigan, so huge retreat, 5,000 teenagers in the room. And the speaker was up there. And he was talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And he said, look, if there's a relationship in your life that's stopping you from having a relationship with Jesus, you need to go talk to somebody. And here I was sitting there among 5,000 teenagers. I'm like, oh my goodness, this man is talking to me about my, me and my dad. And so I went in the back and I talked to this wonderful woman who I'd never met before in my life and told her everything. And boy, oh boy, was she in for that. She heard it all, thank goodness and very graciously walked through 
the pain that I was in and said quite clearly, yeah, your dad has done terrible things, but let's set him aside for a minute. You're really angry, and your anger has led to a lot of stuff. God wants to forgive you of that. Would you like him to? And so he did. And I spent the next six months in the Word of God, reading everything I could about forgiveness. And the only thing that I can use to describe it is that that the hate that I had just started to melt away. It was kind of an unbelievable feeling. And I knew, I knew, like, man, I, I need to forgive my dad. I don't know what he's doing. I had not talked to him in two years. I don't know who he is. He could be the same idiot man doing terrible things. But I, I can forgive him, and I can move forward. And so I reached out to him and asked to see him. Now, the thing that you know about my dad, he's six foot two, overweight guy. He, we, we, we were in a small town in Michigan, so it was a tiny, tiny church, much, much smaller than this. And he had one of those big bass voices that just kind of like rung out over the whole congregation. I hated it. I thought it was so obnoxious. And so when I saw him that night, he was kind of hunched over and he had lost a bunch of weight and he spoke to me in a whisper. Because he was just so scared of this moment. And I was able to tell him everything that God had done in my life and I was able to tell him, look, I forgive you of what you've done. And I was, I was ready to just leave it at that and let him be. But then he asked if he could share what God had been doing in his life. And the amazing thing is that while God was working in mine, he was also working in my father's life. And releasing him from his sin. And setting him on a new path where he could let those things go. And giving him accountability about those things. And he was holding fast to those things. And he was starting new. And so I was able to start a relationship with caution and patience. But now, many, many years later, I have a dad who is grandfather to my kids. It's quite beautiful. Mercy is given freely. But it has to be accepted. Change has to happen. Anger is no way to live your life. But trusting in God's justice is. I believe that shame is a cancer on the mercy and justice of God. The shame that victims of abuse feel. The shame they feel like, could I, could I actually say this? Would somebody believe me if I shared this? It can be debilitating to move forward. And then the shame on those who are committing the abuse. The shock of, if I said this, would they just like condemn me and make me leave forever? But... but could I say this? Would God really forgive me? Is that actually true? And yet, here's where we are. All of us together at the foot of the cross. 
is a place of possibilities. Could we let the shame go? Could we hand over our anger to God and allow his justice and his mercy to do something new? Could we trust in God's forgiveness and the power of his spirit for change? I have hope that we can. Will you pray with me? God of all mercy and grace, every day we wake up and you say your mercies are new for us. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here that no matter what side they are sitting on, whether they have gone through terrible things being done to them or they have been stuck in their sin and don't know how to get out, I pray, God, that they would allow for your mercy to speak to them, that they would have comfort in these moments to trust in you, and, Lord, that you would bring about something new. We believe in all of these things because we see the power of who you are and what you have done on the cross and in resurrecting. It's in your name that we pray all these things.